Hello everyone, I am Madhura Gaikwad and you are listening to Zip Radio Podcasts powered by Synergip. In today's episode, we are discussing microservices and how to build them using Spring Boot and Spring Cloud. Microservices are said to offer some unique advantages over traditional architectures, which is why we are going to dive into the basics of microservices today. In this episode, we have Vinayak Zograkar, CTO and co-founder of Synergip, in conversation with microservices expert Webhav Patil, engineering manager at Synergip. So let's get started with this session. Welcome on board, guys. I'm glad to be your interviewer or co-host, Madhura, and I will first start with some basic questions and then we will dive deeper. And probably it would take two parts to complete because to do justice to this topic, I think we will be doing two parts and each part would be about an hour or less. Let's just start with a question. Can you tell us for the benefit of those who are new to this concept of microservices, what are microservices? Microservices are basically concept of service-oriented architecture. It can have set of multiple loosely coupled services so that they can be independently developed, deployable and scalable by uh, autonomous teams. If you look at the example, let's take example of the e-commerce system where there is a search product service and there is a purchase product service. Now, product searching can be developed by another team and product purchase can be developed by another team. If we look at the pattern, usually uh, users mostly search product than purchasing them. The frequency of uh, using search product is high. So, the scaling of search product is going to be different than scaling of purchase product. So, that's how the microservice concept came to picture. Right. So, there are only one out of 10 users who will be actually purchasing. So, you would have 10 times the traffic on searching. So, which means that these two, if they are in the same monolithic product, you would end up unnecessarily scaling the purchase service. There is no need to scale it because only one in ten times it is going to be needed. Uh, so instead of that, if you break these into two microservices, the search microservice can scale by having ten containers running that microservice, whereas the purchase microservice will be running only in one container. So that way they can scale independently. So that's a big benefit. A very good thing. But other than the scaling, there is also this question of maintainability. Uh, very often when your a monolithic product becomes a few million lines of code, even adding one feature becomes so hard that it right. takes months before a new release can happen. Whereas in microservices world, you can release a microservice independent of others, so you, you are not really scared of regression. And that is how you can quickly do multiple releases, maybe several times in a day or a week. And independent of each other, that is the main thing. Yes. Because development of such service will go in different direction than the development of purchase service. So deployment of such service should not depend on the deployment of purchase service. It should be independent service altogether. So yeah. that is the concept of microservice. Yeah, and another thing that we are increasingly hearing is that it is possible because these microservices are now communicating with each other using standard JSON or REST API. It is possible to have two services written into different languages communicate with each Absolutely other with right. the standard. So it is you are not bound to 
one language, one technology, one type of database. Coming to the question of database, do microservices share the database or do they have their states independently stored in independent databases? Ideally, if you are talking about microservices, then the microservice should have its own database. It should not be shared by the two different microservices in the ideal scenario. But most of the time, it may not be possible. It depends on the business situation. But ideally, it is better to have separate database maintained by that particular microservice. If you are talking about product, product microservice should have its own database. Then uh, customer microservice or user microservice, it should have its own database. Then search microservice, that data should come from different data store, which is maintained in the background. It should be the ideal scenario. Right. And then that way you will be able to independently scale and cache as well. Because if it's a read-only, where there is no state being maintained in the microservice, in that case, that read-only microservice can cache the results. Previous query, for example, the search microservice could cache the results and they could be cached in a Redis kind of value distributed store in which case you don't have to have a very heavy MySQL or Mongo kind of database you can just do it in a lightweight fashion and that cache can get updated periodically so yeah so that is something that uh, is characteristic of microservices so let's dive a little bit deep and start talking about Spring Boot and Spring Cloud. Can you tell what is the significance of Spring Boot and Spring Cloud in the world of microservices? Yes, as we know, microservice is an independently deployable and developed uh, application. Spring Boot helps in uh, simplifying the development and bootstrapping of such services. With the help of just 5-6 lines of code, our application is ready as an independent service. That's the simplicity of Spring Boot. Talking to Spring Cloud consists of multiple Spring projects which are designed for implementing most of the common patterns used in distributed systems. So those patterns could be like configuration management, service discovery, registry, then the routing, URL routing, API gateway, what we call it as then the circuit breakers, logging patterns, then asynchronous messaging, all these patterns are used, commonly used in distributed systems. So Spring Cloud project helps developers to implement all these patterns. And if we want to implement all these patterns from scratch, it is going to be a lot of work for a developer and focus of development will be shifted from real microservice development to the building of the architecture. So it makes sense to use the libraries developed by Spring Cloud project and focus on the real development of microservices. We often have seen Spring making life easier for developers and that is continuing to happen by just having concepts like dependency injection and AOP which were introduced by Spring. Now we have this uh, new way of handling annotated services. So can you talk a little bit about the annotation called auto-wire which I have seen being used and for the benefit of audience. Can you describe what is this auto-wired component or auto-wired service? Yes, auto-wired annotation is used for constructors, fields or certain methods to inject a spring bin which is declared by accurate component or accurate service annotation. Whenever Spring Boot or Spring creates application context, there are Spring Framework creates objects using the annotation that we just uh, talked about at 
the red component or at the red service or there is another way we can create bean using XML definitions so all these beans can be injected by the auto-wired annotation yeah so auto-wired means that you will have reference to the component or to the service available within your application context right right so that is what is the benefit of auto-wired now let's talk a little bit about the different libraries now that uh, we use in the spring cloud so the first one that we came across is a configuration server so why does one need a configuration server why can't i just keep the configuration in a configuration file or a yaml file and just read it off the yaml file or i could keep the configuration in a chef or a puppet kind of script so what is the need of having a configuration server let's take example of an application which has the yaml file or properties file inside the war or padja if suppose there is a change in the database, this often happens that whenever we want to migrate or want to propagate our build from development environment to the test environment or from test environment to UAT or from UAT to production, there are often changes in the properties file for connecting to the, their own databases or connecting to their own some middleware systems. So all this information is present in the properties file. And if that properties file is present inside the application, then that application has to be rebuilt based on the environment. So this could be easier when we have a small set of services or small applications. But if we talk about the large application having number of microservices, then it is very time consuming process. It makes sense to have an immutable application, which means it will not change based on the environment and build something which can feed that application all the properties files needed that is one advantage of doing it other advantage could be for the scaling when we say immutable application we can have n number of instances deployed for that particular application without changing any configuration right i mean since it is immutable you can have massively parallel processing and you can have multiple instances and each instance will independent of other instances behave the same way for the same input you will always get the same output right. so you are assured of that so as I understand it since the configuration is abstracted away then you don't have to worry about let's say if there is an IP address which is used or there is a particular port which is used for a database then if there are two or three containers which are using the same port the chance of having a collision or a clash there is uh, to be avoided and you can't predict in advance how many instances are going to be spawned because that is happening at runtime depending on traffic right uh, you have different properties files for these different containers so that is the complexity of a distributed independently scalable system and second thing is you don't want to build hundreds of microservices for dev test and prod environments every time, right? Unnecessarily uh, introduces time delays and complexity. So instead of that, you will have an immutable service which doesn't have any configuration at all. And that configuration is the state that is being served by the configuration server in one time. Yes. So that is uh, what I understand the need and the way uh, the configuration server works. Yes. The only configuration that the service will need is the bootstrap configuration which means the name of the service and the URL of the config server. So only these two things are needed to be built as the application. 
with the help of these two things, application or the Spring framework automatically connects to the config server. And based on the location that is, that is defined in the config server, either it is uh, the Git repository or the file system or the database, it reads those properties files based on the profile that application is running. So it uh, retrieves the configuration and provides it to the bootstrapping service. The beauty of that is even which port that microservice should be running, that configuration should also go in the config server. Right? Because with the help of that, we can control that from the outside. We right. don't have to. That gets abstracted it. away, and then you don't have to uh, hard code the plan for the specific port numbers in advance. Now, let's talk a little bit about the service discovery. Let's say you have a service A talking to service B, and there are these hundreds of services that are talking to each other. Now, you know, and then there are multiple instances of each service. So, let's say there are multiple instances of a service running out of A on a particular node. Now, how do you know where to go? I mean, which URL, which port, and would it be very difficult for you to find where to go because you have the payload that has to be delivered to a particular service. So how does one know where to go? How do you discover service? Exactly. By definition, service discovery means identifying the physical location of targeted service. That is what service discovery. To achieve that, it makes sense the distributed system. It makes sense to have a centralized registry where all services will be registered. So when I say registered means whenever the service instance boots up, it will send its physical address, port number, URL, centralized registry server, and that registry server will should maintain you know whatever services are registered that should be maintained by that service registry. Another task that service registry should do is removing unhealthy instances. So the service instance job is to register itself with the registry and the second job it does is it keeps sending heartbeat signals to the registry. With the help of those heartbeat signals on the regular interval, the service registry checks whether that service is live or not. Either it keeps that service in the registry or it removes that. Now coming back to the question of service client. The service client in this case has to query to the service registry first before it hitting to the actual service instance. It first goes to the service registry. It asks service registry that how many instances of this particular service are with you. Then with that list based on the algorithm it applies the load balancing. It gets the physical address of the targeted service which is registered in the service registry. Based on the physical address it directly sends payload to the required service instance. So the duty here is the load balancing is done by the service client and not by the service instance itself. Tell me how do you inject the service client in your application? I mean I can understand that discovery service as a microservice by itself running in a container. I can visualize that but what you are saying that every microservice that runs has a sidecar or a client that it has the information. So it's not as if for discovering every service, you have to go to the discovery service. You have your local client that is uh, there to help you. And that has all the information that you might need for discovering uh, other services. So how does one inject this discovery service client into an application service that is running? Yeah. So there is simple configuration using the POM file, the Maven file or using Gradle. We have to add Spring Cloud Eureka server 
library into the client's application and we have to configure the property file saying that this is going to be the service client so that is one configuration other thing is there is a library which is provided by spring cloud itself netflix ribbon we is using that we can communicate to the service registry effectively and ribbon's responsibility is to get the instances service instances registered in the service registry then cache them locally so that whenever the service registry is not available it can use the data that is cached then if there are suppose 10 instances available for that particular service then ribbon does the load balancing it uses round robin algorithm to do the load balancing and then it selects one particular instance address and it communicates so ribbon is the library that is used for this Okay, so you have some kind of annotation act ribbon which will put it in the application container or how does it use ribbon? Yeah, there is a ribbon aware REST template implementation that we have to do. So the simplest thing is whenever in the Bootstrap class we have to expose a bin definition which will be a REST template and we have to annotate that with accurate load balance. so using that and provided we have ribbon dependency in the application using that the ribbon library is activated and we can communicate to the required service okay so the all load balancing caching is done by the library itself right since you are talking about load balancing why can't we use dns for load balancing and what's wrong with why i have all this configuration i mean why not just using a dns service or a load balancer Earlier we used to have this traditional approach where we have a DNS and load balancer combination, but it becomes a single point of failure because if the load balancer is not available, then that service won't be accessible at all. That is one thing. Even if we make that load balancer highly available, there are chances that it will become a choke point because all requests will go through that load balancer only. So. other thing is in the load balancer there are restrictions that how many services it should be registered how many nodes that it should have so those kind of limitations load balancers have and uh, registering services and deregistering them is not always straightforward with the typical load balancers so uh, even in the case of eureka server sorting what happens when the eureka server goes down there is a provision in eureka service discovery to span multiple eureka servers so all the nodes running with that cluster they share the their own states with each other for example if new service comes up and it registers itself with one node then uh, that node communicates that particular state to all the available exactly is the way dns servers work I mean, even dns servers can be having multiple backup and dns services wherein a particular relationship between the url and ip address can be stored on multiple servers so i think replicates itself and in fact otherwise its internet would not be working so what's the difference i'm still not able to understand that what happens if you know all the let's say if there are five eureka and then for the sake of argument if i say that all five of the eureka instances go down then what the duty here is the load balancing is done on the client side even if all five eureka services are down the data will still be cached on the client side the service client side ribbon library takes care of that and with that cached data it can still communicate with the appropriate instance oh. so the load balancing here is done on the client side and not at the server side right that right. is the duty yeah here. yeah so on the client side you are having all the data of all the available instances and then the client is doing the load balancing yes and ribbon 
takes care of periodically refreshing that data. So even even has that data, does it do a health check or does it get the health check from Eureka server? It asks Eureka server to get the new data because it being a client, it doesn't have to register with the Eureka service. Correct. Only services are registered with the Eureka service. I mean, this client can be service for another different other client. Let's say there is an API gateway service A and service B. Now the request goes through API gateway to service A and then service A to service B. In this case, service A will be service client for service B. But if you look at the bigger picture, service A itself is a service for the API gateway. So it can act as a client as well as a service itself. Okay, gotcha. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what happens in case of failure. Right, uh, we have these situations in case of failure where uh, the user goes up waiting for the response, and so there is this timeout which doesn't really happen gracefully. If in case there is a service which has failed, user comes to know about it only after a long wait, which is very frustrating. First of all, you know, you waited for long, and then now you are knowing that uh, you're not going to get what you wanted. Yes, and how does the Microservices architecture, how does it account for uh, these? Because you will have so many services and you don't know which one is going to work, which one is going to fail. You have hundreds of dependencies here, so you are kind of complicating, isn't it? Yes. Netflix has provided a library of districts to implement this protecting the service clients from being failure. Spring Cloud project has good integration with Netflix districts. Using that, we can implement a circuit breaker. Now, circuit breaker itself is a, consider the circuit breakers available in the electric circuits. So, whenever there is a high current flowing through the circuit, uh, the circuit breaker creeps itself and breaks that circuit. So, that's the same implementation is provided by districts as well. What it does is, we have to configure application to enable circuit breaker and the selected methods or selected APIs that we want to have this circuit breaker enabled, we have to annotate them with the districts command annotation. When using this annotation, what Spring does is, or what districts does is, it delegates or it creates the separate thread uh, in a thread in a, a default thread pool and it delegates all that tasks to that thread available in the thread pool. So if you see here now the task, uh, the, the actual task is being done by separate thread, not the main thread. In this case, what happens is there is a timeout set in the application and with the help of that timeout, it uh, terminates or it interrupts the thread which is being executed and thus the system knows that this particular request is taking time. And with the help of that, developer can do two things. Either he catch that exception and send some good message to the uh, end client or he can provide callback data. Right. For example, you know, as I described earlier, in case a service that is sending data is not available, you can get it from cache. That's correct. Right. And you might give a message saying that currently the database service is unavailable, but what I'm providing might be a little stale data, but all the same you're getting something instead of having to wait. So the beauty is that the main thread is continuing to work uh, and it observes a spawn thread which goes and tries the service. And there's a timeout on that, and if it times out, then the main thread still continues. Yes. It doesn't like fall dead because uh, you know you have a graceful timeout that has happened. Yes. The other thing that brings me to the next question that will happen in such a case is let's say service A is calling service B, and service B is calling service C, 
and service C is causing service D, so on and so forth. In which case, if you have to give timeouts, if you have to specify the timeouts for service A, B, C, and D, it can't all be 30 seconds, right? You will have to, because if, let's say, service A times out after 30 seconds, it's not sure that it is uh, really the right time to time out because service B might in fact work in after 15 seconds and service C might return after 15 seconds and service D might return after each one of them takes 15 seconds you will get a return after 45 seconds and still by the time this function uh, returns or you get back the response uh, service A would have timed out so how do you determine like in a chain of calls what should be the timeout? I think the timeout will have to be dependent on where you are in the chain, right? The deeper you are, the less the timeout, the shallower you are, it will be more, more the timeout. Time yeah, that's correct. And with the help of Spring Cloud Netflix districts, it provides the ability for each service to define its own timeout. That's another advantage of using it. Right. Now, there has to be some way for someone to debug, like for example, A cause B cause C cause D kind of thing. So, you are trying to see what has timed out, let's say. I mean, finally, if say service A times out, but it could be because service B has timed out, or it could be because service D has timed out. You don't know which one, uh, what has caused the problem, right? So, in which case, for the purpose of traceability, you need to have something like a correlation ID for each call. So for every call that starts, let's say it hits the load balancer, it needs to have a correlation ID which goes from, because you are spawning threads, it goes from A to B to C to D and while coming back you know exactly which call got originated and why it failed so you know all the way you can trace it because there are hundreds of calls that these services are serving so you don't know which one is belonging to which original id so to have that you have a correlation id my question is that if you have these threads that you are spawning separately right and which i think is brings us to the discussion of bulk trading as well so can you first off discuss what is bulk trading and then how do you take care of correlation IDs in bulk trading? But first let us talk about what is bulk trading. Okay, bulk trading is a concept originated from ship building. If you look at the architecture of a ship, it is built using completely segregated compartments. They are water isolated. All these compartments are called as bulkheads. Even if there is a hull or the hull is punctured, so what happens is the water which is coming into that compartment, it is confined by that compartment only. Thus, it helps protecting the rest of the ship and only that compartment will be damaged. So, this is the concept of bulk heading. Even in this case, as we know that the districts by default delegates tasks to the thread created by its own thread pool. Uh, let's take example of a microservice which has let's say 10 different tasks. Now out of those 10 different tasks or uh, one task is taking time or it is poor performing and suppose there are uh, multiple requests uh, for that particular task then there is a limitation of a thread pool which is created by districts. The default thread pool size is 10. So all those 10 threads will be blocked by that particular request which is for that task 1 and the request for other tasks will be kept in waiting state and that will result in crashing the system down. 
So to avoid that, we have to segregate these tasks into their own thread pools. So this segregation into their own thread pool is called as bulk heading in concept of microservices. Yeah, so let me rephrase and re-understand what, for my understanding, what you are saying is that, let's say there are a number of services or threads are available to the services. Uh, let's say that the upper limit is 10 and if a service ends up taking all the threads that are available, then uh, other services will be starved of threads to run. And right. uh, that is why you would like to limit that number to a top number, to cap it at some number so that even if let's say there is a situation that very often happens that a service is slow and it, it's a bottleneck and usually there is a lot of pending demand for the bottleneck because everybody wants to be to take that service ahead of others and then and there is also this cascading effect that happens because sometimes what happens is users when they see there is it's taking some time they resubmit the same request and in which case it has this cascading effect of demand multiplying in the case of bottlenecks and then you see that bottleneck taking up all the threads that are available and eventually carving the other threads and bringing down the whole system. Yes. So bulk heading would stop that from happening even though there is such a service that is non-performing and uh, a bottleneck kind of situation happens but then it would not cascade to other services it will be capped at let's say x number of threads and it would not go beyond yeah, that. Right. So that is what I understand. Is that is my understanding correct? That is correct. So the basic definition of bulk heading is separating out the poor performing things so that the other services will keep serving their requests. So that's how we separate. Yeah, so now that is according to me easy to understand but what is not easy to understand is that you have a correlation ID. And then you have this thread pool, right? Now you are wanting that same correlation ID to be passed on from a calling service to a called service. But you are not sure because it's not the same thread that is going to be used. So you are going to have to pass on this correlation ID. Otherwise, you don't know which was the original call which caused this uh, service A call service B. So how do you make sure that the service ID is passed on because essentially these services are immutable but you are trying to maintain some kind of thread common identity which is against the principle of being immutable, right? You want some kind of mutability there because you want to introduce this particular ID that tells you that it was the call made by user A that is currently being handled by this service uh, even if it is a third of the fourth service in their stack of calls. So how does one make sure that these correlation IDs are handed off properly? Yes, the concept of correlation ID is to link all the services or all the transactions, all the services execution happening within the same transaction. That is the correlation ID. Whenever the service execution happens, the correlation ID is stored in the thread local variable. Now we are talking about two different threads. One, the parent thread and other threads are the threads created by districts library. But directly, even if there are multiple threads created by that parent thread, the thread context will not be propagated to the child threads. In that case, there is a way districts 
to implement this we have to implement histrix concurrency strategy we have to customize the histrix concurrency strategy and with the help of that we can pass correlation id of the parent thread to the child thread which is created by the thread pool there is a way to extend existing created concurrency strategy and then we have to create a callable implementation as well to provide user context to that and then configure that concurrency strategy in the spring cloud framework and with the help of that we can pass correlation id to the subordinate threads created by histrix right that brings us to the question of routing because to have the correlation id started and assigned in the first place you need to interrupt an incoming call at the load balancer and then for the first instance create that correlation id by filtering out the incoming or interrupting the incoming service. so who does that in microservices world there is a concept of api gateway api gateway is the first server which gets the request and all the requests are directed through api gateway we would say api gateway is the first service to interrupt the request now netflix zool library is used to implement api gateway using spring cloud so advantage of that there is a single url so the client suppose the simple mobile application has to communicate to n number of services if you don't have uh, the centralized mechanism then we would end up having separate urls for all the services other than that if we have an api gateway which is a central location the mobile will have to communicate with just one url that is one advantage of having api gateway now having an api gateway it abstracts the implementation of actual services so whatever we are doing behind the api gateway the external client doesn't have to worry it has to know is what is the url and that's it it doesn't have to know what is the service what is the port that it is running with so everything will be taken care of the architecture which involves the api gateway registry and the service instances so i have some questions here an api gateway seems one abstraction where you have some kind of description of the service that you are looking for as to what functionality it has it gives by having some kind of name being given to it right using that name you are able to access the particular url how does one know what which one is doing what i mean for an api for example there has to be some way of querying and sometime back if you remember there was this concept of some kind of domain specific language visitor was the name of the you know web services description language wsdl wherein you could find out what that service is capable of doing by querying visitor and then probably you would end up calling that service so is it a two stage process wherein first you uh, you see like a look up a directory like a uh, telephone directory uh, look up a name and then uh, you have a number to call and then you hand off the number how is that happening so if you are talking about the zool gateway provided by spring cloud what it does is whenever it receives requests it identifies what is the service that it to look for and then based on the service and that service is present in the url itself based on the pattern so we can customize our own url patterns basically the url is generated based on the default name registered by the service itself that is the default thing but we can override the service name if we want so what happens is whenever a request comes to zool zool has the layer of ribbon library attached to it 
and it's job of that ribbon library to communicate to the service registry. It gets the required number of instances those are registered for that particular service and using the load balancing finds the physical address of the targeted instance and then it communicates to the final service. So Zool also has implementation of ribbon. Okay. Zool is kind of helping me to take a URL and decipher that URL breaking it up into different components. So let's say I have search.myecommerce.com slash get item slash item number equal to 1234 would probably be deciphered into a service called get item and which would have a parameter uh, where the item number is 1234 and that parameter would be passed to this get item service. So it's the same URL you could call by saying add item and 3456 and it would probably add a new item 3456 by having some kind of post method there. Is my understanding correct that you have everything going to the same URL but you have some parameters that are being passed as a part of the URL itself or as a part of the header if it's a post. There are these different verbs like the post verb or the get verb or the put verb and all these verbs are being deciphered by Zoom. So what happens is suppose the Zool's URL is www.myapplication.com that's the Zool URL. Now in my application I have suppose two different services running in background service A and service B. Service A has one task of retrieving let's say products information then the, the URL for that particular service would be www.myapplication.com slash service A slash product slash product ID. So with the help of that it will give me the products information. Now I have another service in the same application, same ecosystem. So here you are using get as the... That's the HTTP method that I am going to use to call that regular. So do you use task. get here or always use get method or you know, how is it? It is the concept of REST implementation or HTTP implementation. So whenever we have to fetch data from server we use get. Whenever we have to create any object inside the server uh, in the database, then we use post. Whenever we have to update any object, we use put. Whenever we have to delete any object, we use delete. So that's the typical implementation of any HTTP uh, service. So like Zool, whatever uh, request we hit, either it is get, post, delete, put, whatever request it hits, it redirects the same request or it forwards the same request to the service instance. What it does is, with the help of Zool, we can do some additional massaging to the incoming request. So there is an implementation of pre-filters provided in Zool. So with the help of that, we can massage that request. For example, suppose the API that I am calling are private APIs, right? In case of private APIs, it makes sense that the authentication should be done on the API gateway itself and not on each service level because it is going to be redundant and all my services are private. So if I want to enforce authentication at the central place, then the API gateway is the best place. What uh, it does is uh, the request comes to it, it applies the policy of authentication. If authentication is successful, then it redirects, it forwards that request to the appropriate service instance. So this is one way of enforcing policy. The other way could be, suppose if we talked about correlation ID, right? So correlation ID is the unique identifier uh, with the help of which we identify 
how the transaction is happening across the services. Now, whenever request comes in, that request is intercepted by the pre-filter and unique correlation ID is appended to that is created by pre-filter and put into the thread uh, local variable and whenever Zool forwards that request to the next service in the service chain, it gets that correlation ID from the thread uh, context variable and puts that as a header for the next request. Right. So that is the way of enforcing common policies. All these uh, so to say cross-cutting concerns, where is the where it is traceability or security or authentication. Right. Right. So those need to be taken care of by having something filtering it or interrupting it at the first instance and that's the type of API gateway work. Yes. So this kind of reminds me that API gateway is doing something like if you remember in the MVC days, we used to have a controller. That controller right. used to centrally control everything that went behind in the model view controller pattern. So this is somewhat similar. I won't say that it is exactly similar, but it is kind of this pattern kind of reminds me of the controller. So the API gateway is doing some work which is similar to that of the controller, but of course there's a lot of uh, other differences as well. Yes. The basic concept here is we should have a capability to massage the incoming request and we should have capability to massage the outgoing request as well. Because with the same example of correlation ID, right? There is a browser application which want to make some transaction and suppose there is some problem somewhere in the transaction uh, in the chain of services, then the correlation ID generated for that particular transaction should be sent out to the client. So that client will know that this is the particular transaction ID which was failed. Now it's developer's job to get that transaction, transaction ID or correlation ID and look into the logs and do analysis which makes sense. Yeah, so just leaves us with a lot of ground to be covered because we haven't yet talked about logging, we haven't yet talked about authentication, True. we haven't yet talked about security and we haven't even touched upon the concept of using uh, event sourcing and uh, CQRS, and there's a whole lot of ground to be covered. I'm sure we will have to meet once again to cover all those things. So, thanks for coming today and uh, giving and sharing all this valuable information, Vaibhav. It was a pleasure to have you on this podcast. And we are going to continue discussing uh, containerized microservices using Spring Boot and Spring Cloud in part two of this episode. So, you know, users and listeners should stay tuned for the part two. Thank you very much. Thanks, Vaibhav. Thank you. Thanks, Madhura. Thanks, Vinayak. Thanks, Vinayak and Vaibhav. That was an interesting take on microservices and we will continue with the rest of the session in our next episode. I'm looking forward to host you again to continue with this discussion. Thank you everyone for joining this episode. If you are looking to accelerate your product roadmap, visit our website www.genrzip.com for more information. Stay tuned to future Zip Radio episodes for more expert insights on technology and agile trends. Thank you.